0: one of the most uh, encouraging things for me as a pastor is to look around a room of people like this uh, and see on so many faces the obvious like feeling and knowledge that we desperately need the Lord. And so my heart has been moved by watching you uh, even sing some of those songs. And so let's, let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask Him for His help as we now look to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do believe with all of our hearts this morning that we desperately need you. And many of us come in here this morning and we're weary and we're tired, we're distracted, we're heartbroken maybe. In all kinds of ways we struggle and we admit and we acknowledge and we confess that we are desperately in need of your help. And if you don't come and if you don't empower everything and inhabit everything that we're doing by the power of your spirit we are wasting our time we know that and the great news is that you are an utterly faithful God you're good you're merciful and gracious and you set your love on us as your people and we trust that you are ministering among us now we ask you to keep doing that as we look to the Bible fill me with your spirit that I might be helpful to these dear people and we pray that your spirit would fall on all of us so that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Because we really don't believe that we'll have that unless you come. So come we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the sermon series that we did together as a church uh, that I preached last December primarily uh, called Dealing with Darkness, we took four weeks to look at various mental and emotional health kinds of issues, from depression to anxiety to grief, and then finally addiction and dependency. And in that sermon series, you you heard me use language at several points about ways that we sometimes use the Bible that are less than helpful, they're less than optimal. And one of the things that we can do as people who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe that God is the one who inspired it, that it contains the very words that God wanted written down as he inspired men to write it. We believe that it is sufficient for all things, all matters of faith and practice. We believe that it's perfect, that it's without error. So for people like us, one of the things that we can do, is to turn the Bible into a kind of handbook for mental health or emotional health or even turn it into a, a book of principles to live by. Now, certainly the Bible contains those things, principles to live by. It is the greatest standard by which to live our lives. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. But I would... Would wager, I think. I think you agree with me. I think you're tracking with me that that the principles that Scripture contains, by which we live, those are not the primary thrust of the Bible. The primary thrust of the Bible is primarily a person. His name is Jesus Christ. The primary thrust of the Bible is God's plan of redemption to make a people for Himself that He would make through his son and his work in their place that he would apply his son's work to those people by the power of his holy spirit and then he would ultimately bring those people his people his children to be with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth that's the thrust of scripture this great plan of redemption that god is accomplishing god is the decisive actor in world history and in redemptive history. So when I speak this way, I just want to continue to help us think well as a church about the main thrust and emphasis of the Bible so that we don't end up turning the Bible into a book of principles to live by. Because when we do that, friends, I think that we are on our way to making Christianity something that we do. We always want to kind of keep these things in our frame of reference. And it's in that sense when we think the Bible is a book of principles that I need to conform to. Christianity becomes this thing that I must do and execute. And then we bring this kind of law economy into the Christian life. So part of what we're thinking about today is our desperate need for God. And we're thinking about the fact that God is faithful and good to empower us. So I would wager that even in a church like ours, at least I'm speaking for myself, I would confess, we would confess, yes, we are desperate for grace. We need grace. We need God's spirit. If we're going to do anything good, we say that. I think we believe that. And we don't believe it enough. I don't know that any of us do. I think we are far more dependent upon God than we even realize and than we even would say or confess. So that's in my mind as we're coming to this text today in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, we've now made our way through the first two chapters of Paul's letter. And we're now going to begin with the first verse of Galatians chapter 3. So we're in the New Testament in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the letter to the Galatians follows right after his letter to the Romans, and then the first and second letters to the church at Corinth. We'll be looking today at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, uh, but for context, I'm going to begin reading for us in chapter 2 and verse 15. So now that you've had just a moment to flip, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. I think we're going to try to get these verses up there. Now, I threw Ryan a curveball because he's probably got Galatians 3 in his mind, but I've said Galatians 2.15. But here we go. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have a a three-part plan, a three-point plan for us today. First, I want to consider Paul's rebuke of the Galatian Christians and the fact that they're turning to another gospel. Consider his rebuke first. And then I want to speak a word just about Paul's, what I would call his edge and his intensity that you probably sense in this letter, and especially in these verses, calling people foolish. It's a pretty strong language. And then finally, I want us to consider together what I, what I think is a massive implication For us as Christians that flows right out of verses 2 and 3. So that's the plan. Paul's rebuke, a word about his edge and intensity, and then finally finally an implication of massive importance for us. So number one, we'll begin together by looking to the text and considering Paul's rebuke of the Galatian Christians. You see with me in verse 1 that he calls them foolish. He's going to call them foolish again in verse 3. And he even asks them, after calling them foolish, he says, who has bewitched you? Quite literally, who has casted a spell upon you? What are you thinking? What are you doing? This is craziness. Spiritual warfare is certainly in view as he's making this rebuke. But then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he's calling them foolish because they have turned, think back to chapter 1 and verse 6, they have turned to a different gospel. They have turned from the gospel that they originally heard, the gospel that saved them, that they were counted righteous purely by faith in Christ, they have now turned to a different kind of message that says, yes, trust Christ, but also observe the law. Yes, trust Christ, but also be circumcised for righteousness. So Paul has just stated, the reason that I read those verses from chapter 2 is just to continue to keep in our minds how clear Paul has been about what the gospel is. He has just stated unequivocally that no human being can be justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. And that if righteousness came through the law, then in fact, Jesus died for no purpose. This is an all or nothing proposition like we considered last week. So Paul says, who has cast a spell on you? What in the world are you thinking? And as I said, I I trust that even with that kind of language of, Of magic, sort of dark things, right? I think the work of Satan and demons is in view. All kinds of forces of evil would be in view in Paul's mind. I think that's fair. That sin, certainly, but also Satan are working to confuse and distort the gospel. Paul says, What's going on? What are you thinking? Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. You have beheld him crucified for you. Now, you might be thinking, uh, I thought the crucifixion happened in Jerusalem. It's like, well, that's true. What he means by the public portrayal of Christ crucified is the preaching of the word. That these Galatian Christians, just like we're doing right now, like you're doing right now, when you hear Christ proclaim. The Holy Spirit shows up and it's, we see, we see it. It's real, right? So that's what he's saying. You've seen him publicly portrayed as crucified. You should know better. You should know better that that crucifixion was absolutely necessary for your salvation. And you should know better that that crucifixion was absolutely effective to save you. And there's no need for this business of law keeping and circumcision. But Christ has done it all. He was portrayed as crucified for sinners. They should know better than to turn to works of the law as contributing anything to their standing before God. And friends, amongst a, a host of things, I think this has to be humbling for us. This demonstrates clearly that Christians can err in their understanding. Right? Just because we have been converted... Does not mean that we become perfect in all things right now. We are being perfected. We are being sanctified. But we still stray. Not just at the level of life. Not just at the level of behavior. But we stray at the level of doctrine. We stray at the level of knowing what's true and right and good. And I would contend I don't have time to go there right now. That that straying in doctrine is upstream. Upstream of our straying in behavior. What I mean by that is if we get doctrine wrong, we got no shot of living right. It's a big deal. It's a humbling thing. This is why it's good to pray. Pray for your pastors. Pray for our church that we would guard the gospel faithfully. That we would proclaim the word rightly. That we would divide it well. Because Christians go astray on the regular in this fallen world. But then we move on to verse 2. And this is where Paul's really going to begin to press. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is, of course, a rhetorical question, right? Paul says, I only want to know one thing. Give me the answer to this one thing. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law, circumcision or any other kind, or was it by hearing the message of Christ by faith? And the answer, of course, is obvious. Anybody with any kind of perception at all says, well, obviously it was by hearing with faith. It wasn't by works that they received the Holy Spirit. They were born again, supernaturally, miraculously, and they came acknowledging their sin and casting themselves upon the mercy of God and Jesus. And they received the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. It's obvious. So Paul is appealing to their experience here. They know what happened to them. That's why we'll talk like that biblically here at CBC. Like something happened to us at conversion. Not something you did. Something happened to us. We'll think more about that maybe in just a minute. But what's really important for us to see here, friends, in this conversation about law keeping, and in particular with circumcision in view, this Holy Spirit indwelling reality, this new birth thing that happens at a point in time and space, it matters. Why? Because in the old covenant, in the Jewish understanding, even at this time when Paul is writing this letter, the Jewish understanding, the understanding of all of those who were pressing to observe circumcision and works of the law, was that circumcision was how someone entered into the covenant people of God. It's how they were marked off as a part of God's covenant people. Circumcision. It's a big deal. In the old covenant, that's how it functioned. Think about it. Even as sojourners and foreigners were grafted in, what would happen? The men were circumcised. It was a part of God making distinction between his people and the world. Well, the big deal with this now is that with the coming of Messiah, with the coming of the Savior, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, and the inauguration of the new covenant, that marking off peace is no longer circumcision. That marking off peace is the new birth. Being indwelt, receiving the spirit of God is now how the distinction is drawn. It's no longer by circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart. Right? It's regeneration. And so that's in view here. That we don't need that fleshly outward sign anymore to signify you're one of God's people. What's happening now is an internal reality called the new birth by the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the spirit, you are marked out as one of God's. Right? So that's going on here. And this is a radical, radical shift in redemptive history. It's always been God's plan, but it's a radical change. So Paul is saying look, you don't need to be circumcised in your flesh in order to be marked out or considered to be amongst God's covenant people. You need to be circumcised in the heart, which God has done for you if you've received his spirit. And then more broadly, even. Thinking beyond circumcision. It wasn't by the work of the law in any measure. Any law. Any command. That the Galatians received the Holy Spirit. It was not because of anything that they did. That resulted in them being born again. They became a part of God's covenant people. Simply through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to continue. The first rhetorical question. Obvious. You know what happened. It wasn't by works that you were born again. You're now marked off as God's people. And that happened by hearing with faith. Now, are you so foolish? Here we go again. Are you so foolish, Galatian brothers and sisters? Having begun by the Spirit, which you did, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul, again, is going to challenge the Galatian Christians and implies their foolishness by returning to their own works they keep wanting to return, not for their sole righteousness. It's not that they're trying to say, I'm just going to completely flat out work my way to righteousness. But it's that they want to work a little bit. That there's a few works. Somehow, some way, there's something that we've got to do to be righteous before God alongside faith in Jesus. So Paul continues to challenge them. He asks them this second rhetorical question. Having begun by the Spirit, which you did, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your working? And his answer, implied, is clearly, no way. No way. If you began by the Spirit, you will finish by the Spirit. If you began by the Spirit, you will be perfected by the Spirit. So the Galatian Christians received the Holy Spirit again as they trusted in Christ and having begun there, are they now foolish enough to think that they will finish this Christian life in their own works and in their own effort, even their own discipline? That's the charge. That's Paul's argument. That's what he's pressing upon them. He's trying to wake them up. Right? This is strong language, which brings me back to, or brings us forward, I guess we could say, into the, the second point, the second piece of what I want us to consider together today. And that's just a brief consideration of Paul's intensity. A brief consideration of the kind of edginess with which he's writing. Because he understands what's at stake here. It's a big deal. So you can see as easily as I can, we've pointed this out at least once or twice already, that in verse 1 and in verse 3, he calls the Galatian Christians foolish for what they're doing. And he's pressing these questions on them rhetorically, almost with like a, little bit of, a little bit of sarcasm and edge to them. Like, are you really that naive? Are you really that foolish that you could possibly think what you're thinking? It makes absolutely no sense. So there are times, friends, when this kind of language and this kind of communication in terms of its edginess and intensity are called for. It's called for when Christians lose their senses. It's the best way I know to say it. And that's what's happened here in the Galatian churches. They have lost their senses as to what the gospel is. They have lost their senses as to how a person is declared righteous before God and reconciled to Him. So the, the letter that is prompted That it needs to be written by Paul because of these circumstances is of the most serious kind. The gospel's at stake. The lifeline has been compromised, right? And so Paul writes and speaks the way that he does. And now I'm clearly not an apostle. Um, I am a pastor, just a preacher of the word. Uh, We trust set apart to do this, but I am not a writer of Holy Scripture. But Paul also was a, a human being too. So I was reflecting on this sermon series and even some of the recent sermons from, from Galatians. And I realize, even in my reflection, that I probably at times have an edginess to me. A kind of intensity about the way that I may be communicating the gospel or things that I have concerns for. And I think that that, that is coming, honestly, as I thought about it. I think it's coming from what I see in the text. And what I perceive to be Paul's posture in writing to the Galatian Christians. And it's not that I think our church is where the Galatian churches were. But I also am aware that unless we like just absolutely, passionately, vehemently defend the gospel, we'll be there. You don't keep the gospel without defending it intentionally and passionately. And without preaching it in all of its glory and offense. And so that's part of my aim, even in this text, is to honestly unsettle all of us a little bit with the realities of the gospel. And so I feel this. I feel it's intense even to me. And what's at stake as we consider this letter, it could not be more important for us as individual Christians. It could be more important for us as a church. At an early point in our church's life like now or 30 years from now, it doesn't matter. It is of utmost importance. This question of how are we justified? How are we declared righteous before a holy God? No more important question than that. No more important question than that one to get right. Is it completely by the grace of God through faith in Christ? Is it that? Or is it a situation where maybe it's mostly that, but our works contribute something, no matter how small the contribution? Is it that? That matters. There's a world of difference between those two places. How do we live the Christian life? How are we sanctified? Let's phrase it that way. How are we sanctified? Fundamentally, decisively. How does that happen? Is it by faith in Christ and reliance upon God's spirit? Or is it by our own effort and our own works and our own discipline to some degree? It's a really critical question that we would consider together. And so... That's why in this sermon series, I I feel myself being pulled by what the Apostle Paul is writing and saying, his defense of the gospel. And there are always things in every era, in every circumstance, there are always ways that the gospel is being compromised or could be compromised. There are always things being written. There are always things being preached that are less than helpful. In our day, we have access to media all over the place. So it's not like you've got to go down the road to hear a preacher that might say something that could harm us or harm you. You can see it all over the Internet. You can listen to podcasts as long as you want to. And so that's why I I am, just to be clear with you, that's why I have been passionate even in defending something like the faith alone gospel. The fact that we are justified, counted righteous completely by the work of Christ in our place. His perfect life that fulfilled the law for us. His atoning death that paid our penalty. And then his triumphant resurrection that secures us. That we will be resurrected and get God forever. And that that happens completely. Like 100% by faith. And that while we care about how we live. We will never, ever attempt to weave any work or any kind of obedience into the groundwork of justification. Because there are people, even in our own day, who speak in a way where it sounds a lot like that. Like we're weaving good works into the fabric of justification. Not going to happen here. It won't happen here. Because if we do that, we've given it all away. There's no gospel anymore. There's no assurance anymore. Like that wonderful song we just sang, Christ is mine forevermore. And all the trials that we're going through. I'm looking at the tears falling down faces. And I can't hardly sing over here. Like that. No the ultimate assurance. There's no ultimate hope that this is going to turn out well. If your works or your obedience are even a part of this equation. I want you to feel that. It's biblical. That's what matters most. But I want you to feel that and own it. Or there are ways in which assurance is being eroded by attempts I trust that are well-meaning. There are well-meaning attempts going on all over the place, even in the evangelical church, to promote holiness, to promote commitment to church, to combat nominalism and easy believism, to combat antinomianism. And I trust these are well-meaning intentions, but there are biblical ways to go about doing that, and there are less helpful ways to go about doing that. And one thing that I pray we never do here is erode your assurance so that you will then be motivated to be holy. That is not the way to do it. So when we preach the Bible, when we go to a passage like Hebrews 12, that's about discipline. Talk about that for a second. So there's a verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 14. It says, For there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's serious. It's really serious. But in that context, I would contend what that verse means is not the way that it's most often preached. You hear that preached, you better be holy or it's kind of a threatening tone, right? That passage is all about being disciplined as a son. It's about being disciplined as a child of God. That God is a good father and he disciplines those who are his. He disciplines those he loves. Just like a good father on earth would do. And so, yes, you're going through hard times. You're suffering. You're being disciplined. Strengthen your weak knees and your feeble hands. Bear up under the discipline of God because there's a holiness without which no one will see him. That's the argument, right? It's not to scare you. It's to comfort you when you're going through discipline. When you're being sanctified and tried, purified like silver or gold. And it's hot. And you're in the crucible. My gosh, the last thing in the world you need to be thinking is that I'm God forsaken? You're not. God is in that. Right? You can trust Him. He's good. He's faithful. He's got you. He's got this. And yes, it's hard. But He's disciplining you because you're His. That's just one example. Right? That's gospel, that's assurance. And that right there motivates holiness, baby. It does. It motivates us to live for God. Because you say, how amazing is my Lord? How loving and merciful and gracious is my God? How wise is my God? How good and faithful is He? That He won't let me continue down this path of ruin. But He's going to change me, even when it's hard. But I can trust Him. He gave His Son for me. And He loves me. This, this is all tethered to this stuff. In Galatians, what Paul is contending for in the gospel and it being accomplished by Jesus in our place. So you'll hear me say this. I'm kind of moving on to the next thought. You'll hear me say things about something good. So a good thing that we'll emphasize in our church regularly. Spiritual disciplines. Good thing. Reading the Bible. Prayer. Fasting. Giving. Corporate worship. All these things. Those are good things. My fear is, though, that sometimes, not meaning to, sometimes we will talk about those things as though they in and of themselves are the answer. We we ought never talk about spiritual disciplines as though they in and of themselves are the answer. We ought to talk about them always by being grounded in the faith that we have in Christ and ultimately grounded in the power of God's Spirit. Right? That by the Spirit, by grace, through these means will be changed. Those means in and of themselves will do nothing apart from the grace of God. Those means in and of themselves, apart from the Spirit of God, will do nothing. So that's why, even as we think towards living a disciplined life, it's always a disciplined life accompanied with pleading with God. That you would say, God, help me. Give me the grace that I need. When I'm going to open the Bible, God, be with me. Because if you're not out, it's a waste of time. I need you to help me. God, prompt me to pray more. I want to pray more. Help me be a man of prayer. God, I don't feel like being involved in the church right now. Give me a desire to be involved with the saints. Those kinds of things. I know that we believe that. But let's just be explicit in the way that we talk. By grace, by the power of God that he's faithful to provide. He changes us through those means. Praise be to his name. And then just touching back on some of these things where we can... Meaning well, we can principalize and kind of codify the Christian life. I think that when we do that, friends, that we are at best assuming the high-level kind of fundamental truths of the Bible. And at worst, we can even be forgetting them. I don't think that's so much a problem here at CBC. I just want to be clear. I think we're mindful of those fundamental truths. But I want to never take for granted that we always will be. Right? We must be intentional. It's so easy To turn the Christian life, as I mentioned in the introduction, into something that has more to do with our own willpower and our own determination than it does a constant sense of our need for grace. We can turn it into this thing that I'm going to white-knuckle do it versus sensing my need for God's grace and constantly pleading with Him to give it. So it's good for us to remember, friends, when we come to a passage like today or when we're thinking about anything in the Christian life And when we look to Scripture and we see what's good for us, when God tells us, do these things because they're good, avoid these things because they're bad, we need more than just that wisdom. We need more than just that commandment. Because we're people who need more than wisdom, we need transformation. We need rescue. We need grace. In order for those commands and those principles to be of help. To us, The the, the, the law of God, as I said earlier, is the best standard ever, ever, by which to live our lives. It shows us where we fail and thereby shows us where we need to grow and change. But as we've considered before, the law in and of itself could never change us. The law in and of itself was never meant to sanctify. It is only the spirit of God and the grace of God that can do that peace. And he uses the law. But it's not the law that does it. And this matters, friends, for a host of reasons. It matters for assurances we've considered. But it matters for the kind of culture that we would have in this church. right? We want to have a church where we're honest about sin and we correct it and we rebuke it. And we live in accountability that's compassionate. Where we live in accountability that's charitable. right? Where we can really lock arms together and walk together, even if we're limping. We're walking together. Well, friends, there is a... There's a self-righteousness that comes from willpower religion, right? There's a self-righteousness that comes from that kind of willpower and determination construct. And there is a humility and a charity that comes towards others when we are rightfully aware of our need for grace and when we are rightfully pleading to God for it on the regular. And so those are just a few of the things that I have had on my mind and heart, even that I've seen pulled out of me as we're working our way through Galatians. And it's like, hey man, we're going to staunchly defend these truths here at this church by the grace of God, by the power of His Spirit. We're going to defend this stuff and we're going to live together. So now as we've considered Paul's intensity and kind of how that's landed on me as a pastor, I appreciate you kind of thinking with me and letting me even open up to you about some of those things. I now want us to consider finally piece number three, point number three. A massively important implication of verses 2 and 3. And it's this. We are not justified by faith in Jesus and then sanctified by our own effort. We are not justified by faith in Jesus and then sanctified by our own effort. So both justification and sanctification, this is another way for me to put this. Both justification and sanctification are the work Of the Holy Spirit and are the result of faith in Christ. Both justification and sanctification are the work of the Holy Spirit and a result of faith in Christ. So we are as dependent upon the grace of God for our sanctification, growth in the faith, as we are dependent upon His grace for our justification. I think it's easy in our experience to really feel the need for grace and the need for God's Spirit to be converted. So, okay, yeah, I was blind, I was dead. Like, I had nothing about me that was attractive to the things of God at all. And it had to be, it had to be a miracle that God worked purely out of grace that I would be born again and trust Christ. I think everybody in this room, we're tracking with that. It's important that we would understand that even in sanctification, we are just as dependent upon the Spirit of God to accomplish that work as we were in conversion. Yes, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God now, and we have been changed, and we are changing. But friend, where where did that change come from? It came from the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. It's not your doing, not my doing. We're going to keep thinking about this and what this means for us. So a couple of weeks ago, we've already kind of talked about conversion a little, but I might reason with you just a little bit more. A couple of weeks ago, we considered that our faith in Jesus is not our own. It's given to us by God. And we considered the fact that the new birth is something that has happened to us. And we thought a little bit about what that looked like to become a believer. To hear this message of Christ crucified, to see him publicly portrayed as crucified. For you to say, you know, I don't don't know much, but I know that I want Christ. Nobody comes to Jesus who doesn't want to come to Jesus. We talked about the fact that we really made a decision to follow Christ. And we will be making decisions to follow Christ every day of our lives. We wake up in the morning, mindful of the fact that I'm still trusting Christ today. God, thank you that I am trusting Christ still. Help me to trust Him through this day. It's how we live. And so then we asked the question and kind of made the observation that the real heart of the issue is not, did we make a decision to follow Christ The heart of the issue was, why did we choose what we chose? Why did we choose Christ and not something else? And that's where we're like, okay, if we're going to dig underneath my decision to follow Christ, what's at the bottom? What's at the bottom of my salvation? What's at the bottom of my conversion? At the bottom of that is God himself. The sovereign grace of God. The electing love of God. That chose us before the foundation of the world that we didn't ask for, that we certainly didn't deserve, and He gave it to us. And He said, I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to overcome your rebellion. My Son has accomplished righteousness for you, and He has atoned for your sin, and by my Holy Spirit, I'm going to apply that work to you and make you mine, son, daughter. That's what happened. And so, as we shift, From thinking about how we became Christians. To now how do we live as Christians. That same relationship exists. That same heart fundamental question is there. What was true of our conversion. Is true of our sanctification. We're just going to think about that for a minute. So are you. As you sit here this morning. Are you making choices. In the Christian life. Yes, you, I hope so. Are you actively involved in terms of your will and your desire? Are you involved in this Christian life? I hope so. Yes, you are. Do you work hard at the Christian life? Again, yes, I hope so. Does the Christian life require intentionality? Yes, it does. Without question, it does. Does the Christian life Require commitment. Yes. You better believe it does. But those. Five or six questions. They're not the real questions. They're not the fundamental. Grounding kind of question. The real question is this. Let's take each of those one by one. When we make choices. When we choose to flee from sin. And turn from it. Why do we choose that? Why? Why? How? When we will, when we desire to follow God and honor Him, why do we will that? When we work and we fight hard against the sinful desires of our flesh that just keep chasing us around. When we fight, how? Why? Where does that come from? When we are intentional about living the Christian life. Where does that intentionality come from? When we're committed to doing what God says is good. When it's like, own this. It's hard. God says it's good. And I'm going to do it. Where does that resolve come from? When we are committed to the local church. When we endeavor to love one another. Where does that come from? What's at the bottom? I think you're probably tracking with me God is at the bottom God is at the bottom the Holy Spirit is at the bottom of all of that where does that come from when you fight sin it comes from the Holy Spirit when you desire to follow God and not do what sounds good to your flesh that comes from the Holy Spirit when you're committed to the local church and you're loving people at great cost to yourself that comes from the Holy Spirit And on and on we go. He is the ground. He, by the way, is a person, right? He, the Holy Spirit, is the ground of your choosing and mine. You're willing. You're working. You're committing. The Holy Spirit is the ground of that. So I'm going to ask you to flip with me to two different texts. Just very briefly. That I think make the case better than I could. First, just flip over. We'll skip over Ephesians, the letter that's right next to Galatians, and we're going to go to Philippians. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, 12. This is worth flipping to. Maybe the greatest two verses in the Bible, i thinking about the relationship between God's working and our working in sanctification. And I trust you hear me right, but I'm going to try to clarify some things more. So here we go, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, let's just read it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, so he's no longer with them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's pretty remarkable. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Are you working? Yes. You willing? Yes. You choosing, committing, committing, Striving? Fighting? Yes. Why? How? Verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The ground of your willing is God. At the level of desire. Right? That's a pretty visceral level. At the level of desire, God is the ground of what's going on. Your desire to please Him and live for Him and obey Him. It is God who decisively is working that in you. And then He is also the ground of your working. So at the level not just of desire but of execution. God is the ground of that. He is the one who ultimately is working decisively through you by His Spirit to do these things. To desire these things. To strive for holiness. This is part of the reason why I say, and and like-minded brothers in this room and sisters in this room, we rejoice in the reality that you don't need to terrify Christians, generally speaking, into living holy lives. Occasionally, yes, we go off the rails and we need to be shaken. But week in and week out, this is the reality. You're different than you were. You've got the Holy Spirit living in you and working in you, and He's faithful. That's what we want to tap into. Right? We're abiding in Christ. The life comes from the vine, right? Yeah, and we're the branches. I lost my senses But I want us to flip to another passage that I think is also helpful. Flip back now. And you're going to skip back over Galatians and 2 Corinthians and go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. I'm actually going to start in verse 9. <coughs> Okay, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, in verse 9, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul, he's working really hard. He says that. I worked harder than anybody. But then... He's working harder than any of the other apostles. My goodness, I mean, these are not like regular dudes in one sense. They're kind of important. He's working harder than all of them. But he does not understand at all. You can see it right there in the text. He doesn't understand at all that he is the one who is decisively doing that. Not for one second does he think that. Of course he understands himself to be active. Of course he understands himself to be working hard. But he says, it was not me. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me that produced that. So even like on a more practical level, friends, as we're thinking about even reading our Bibles or praying, local church involvement, hatred of sin. If you wake up any morning of your life and you want to read your Bible, where does that come from? It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit. You just, I'm pressed uh, to pray for someone. I'm pressed to pray for something in my life. I'm pressed to pray against temptation. I'm pressed to pray for that brother who I know is hurting today. Where does that come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit, right? So the point point here, guys, is that I want you and I to be utterly, utterly hopeless when it comes to what we can do. But completely hope-filled when we think about what God will do through us by His Spirit. That's the point. This is not like despair of your inability. This is rejoice in what God does in his people. That you decided to come to church today. I'm sure, yeah, can there be some mixed motivation? Could it be some, well, I just feel like I got to go or whatever? Maybe, maybe. But your decision to get out of bed, put on clothes, brush your teeth, hopefully, eat some food, whatever, come here. And be here. Why? When everything in your life is like, man, it'd be easier to sleep in today. i got every reason in the world to just lay out. You're here. It's the Holy Spirit in you. When you, so I'm looking looking at a room full of sinners, myself included, right? Sin in ways that breaks our hearts. That reality, though, that you grieve over sin, doesn't come from you comes from God's Spirit. The fact that you sin and you hate it, you really hate it. And you're like, I don't want to do that stuff. That doesn't come from you either. It comes from the Holy Spirit working in you. So I think it's, it's amazing to think about that even, even as born-again people, our life, our willing, our working, our vitality, it comes from God's Spirit or it comes from nowhere. We don't produce this in our own power. It is God who empowers his people to live for him. So, the final thoughts, friends, that I want to leave you with like, what's the takeaway? Like, if I'm going to leave here, final handles to hang on to or just hooks to hang my hat on, it's this: it's that you nor I trust in our own works or our obedience in any level, now or in the future. To be the ground of our standing before God. That's clear. We've been really clear about that. Paul has been very clear about that. We trust Christ alone. Amen. And then, I don't rely on my wisdom or my discipline, my strength, in order to live this Christian life. I rely completely upon the Holy Spirit. And I walk here. It's a key thing. I walk humbly before my God. (laughs) I walk humbly before my God. I acknowledge my own sin. I own my sin. I ask my God to have mercy on me for Jesus' sake. I trust that He is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I trust that. And then I continually plead for God to give me grace, continually plead. For the grace that will change me. And from there I strive. I endeavor to love. I endeavor and strive to obey and live. As God has said. And then I boast in nothing. Nothing. Other than my Lord Jesus Christ crucified for me. I give God all the credit. For my conversion. I give God all the credit and all the glory. For any growth in my life. I give him all the credit for any good work I ever do. Because he is the one who has ultimately produced it. It's how we live. It's how we walk. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for sending your son for us. We thank you for putting your spirit within us and empowering us to live for you. We do it imperfectly and we're sorry for our sins. We pray you would forgive us for them. And we pray that you would continue to give us grace and power by your spirit that we might live lives that are holy, that we might live lives that glorify and honor you. And we pray that we would walk together as a church and help one another in this Christian life. Continue to To sustain our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to cause us to despair more and more of our own strength. And continue to give us greater confidence in you and the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.